Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. One minute. Okay. Yeah, we need the NATO. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from my home office in Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, and I'm just up the road, uh, also in the heart of Europe. It's sunny today in the heart of Europe, but we're doing something a little bit different today. Instead of bringing in a guest, we thought with this, our final podcast episode of 2020, we would talk a little bit about the year that's passed, maybe even the year to come. And I also wanted to take the opportunity to talk to Hugh about a bit of an event in Hugh's year, but also all of ours, a new edition, an updated edition of Hugh's book, Dining with Al-Qaeda, which he published back in 2010 on the basis of what at that time was three decades of uh, exploration, adventures, and newspaper reporting in the Middle East. So that is just out this year. And You know, when the book came out 10 years ago, it was Book of the Year in The Economist and got great reviews. But it's 10 years later, and man, has it been a busy 10 years in the Middle East and elsewhere. So Hugh, I want to start off just by asking you, when new readers come to this book, what are they going to get from something that covers a period from, what, 1980 to 2010 as they look ahead to 2021 and beyond? Thanks, Olya. Yes, it's really done because when I was sitting down in those long early nights of the lockdown, started rereading it because that's what one sometimes does. I thought, well, hang on, this is actually speaking to me about what's going on now and what has happened in the last 10 years. And actually, for me, who spent, as you said, more than three decades there, studied Arabic, Turkish and Persian and felt very comfortable going everywhere in the Middle East and covering events that these events were often quite similar in pattern. It was a bit like looking through a kaleidoscope, you know, the same bits and pieces, but being rearranged in a different way every time. So when I would come to a chapter from the mid-1990s about uh, being in Kabul, spending a week basically meeting all the Taliban who were current at that time setting up a state in Afghanistan. And guess what? (laughs) This year, we're back with the Taliban talking about how the Taliban are going to work out statehood in Afghanistan again. And it struck me that people needed to see that side of what was going on then. It's the same thing with Iran. Everyone's still wondering, what does Iran want? What does Iran mean? Where is what you get with Iran? And then I feel, hang on, well, that's my experience as well from trying to explain Iran to the readers of the Wall Street Journal. I had to go back to a poet from the 15th century, forget uh, the 1980s, to try and explain that what you see is not what you get. So I felt that all these elements seen or presented from a purely personal perspective, just a narrative, was my way of trying to give everyone who wanted to read the book those bits and pieces so that they could at least understand better what the building blocks of Middle Eastern society, culture, and historical events might be. So history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes, right? And rereading it, you found a lot of the rhyme. Is that kind of an accurate way of of putting it? Definitely. I feel that things obviously are new. Plus a change, all all that, yeah? Well, no, it's a bit different. I mean, things have changed in the last 30 years. So what's changed? What's the big change? Well, for me, it's the agency. The way that countries like Turkey and Iran and the broader, broader Middle East, 
sort of counter Azerbaijan and even Saudi Arabia are doing things on their own in a way that was inconceivable in the 1980s. When I remember when I used to go into Western embassies as a young reporter, I would go there almost as into a temple. It would be they knew what was going on, they were deciding what was going on, and I would hear a bit of it and would be glad of it. Now, I think towards the end of my time in the Middle East, I got the impression that diplomats were listening to me to find out what was going on, and simply because I'd been out and about in a way that they hadn't been. That's fascinating. I mean, that's both about how diplomatic activity has changed and how the region has changed, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Turkey used to be like an armed American camp, and now the United States is hanging on with its fingernails to the last big base. You know, I find it extraordinary. And Damascus in the 1980s, the Soviet embassy was just this powerhouse of a building where you knew that so much was decided. And I, I don't get the impression that the Russians control Assad incumbent. So the book is titled Dining with Al-Qaeda. So what did you eat? Well, actually, we ate Chinese together. And that, I had that as a holding title for a while, eating Chinese with Al-Qaeda, until someone pointed out that it sounded a little bit cannibalistic. And um, so, yeah. Tell me the story. So, um, when I was discovering Saudi Arabia, and it was just after the 9-11 attacks, at that time, we Western journalists like myself still felt entitled and empowered to go and visit anyone we wanted. Uh, Al-Qaeda seemed like another group attacking Americans who we were perfectly used to in the Middle East. I personally have seen two Western embassies blown up in front of my eyes. The idea that this kind of attack could happen in America didn't seem very strange. So we carried on business as usual. So I went to Saudi Arabia looking for Al-Qaeda. And I had contacts in the the uh, Saudi underground opposition there were preachers and very honest, upstanding men. They seemed the one I was following seemed to be. While interviewing his family, I asked, you know, oh, actually, he came in. He said, look at this flyer from our mosque. And it was a pro-Al-Qaeda flyer. And I said, oh, really? Do you have any contacts? Can you introduce me? And he thought about it. And he rang me up the next day and said, yes, there's someone who would talk to me. And uh, I was actually leaving Riyadh that day. So I checked out of the hotel. He picked me up in his pickup. I tossed my bags in the back and went off to, actually, I didn't know where. I hadn't really told anyone where I was going and ended up in a meeting with two people, one of whom had been in the camps with the 9-11 hijackers and had been their missionary. In fact, he'd been like a, the chaplain of Al-Qaeda in the camp in um, Afghanistan. And it's really looking back on things that one realizes what may, may or may not have happened. But at the time, it was seemed like a normal reporting thing, except that when this chap came in, he didn't shake hands with me. And when we sat down, he wouldn't respond to my greetings. The interview was happening in Arabic. And uh, it was a bit odd because normally one goes through the niceties. And then the first thing he said to me was, I think I should kill you. And no one had actually ever said that to me like that before, at least not apparently seeming to mean it. And so I was a bit uh, taken aback. I did realize that I was exposed because uh, no one knew where I was. And uh, they were three people. I was one. And they were definitely close to Al-Qaeda. But I just kept talking. And um, we entered into a kind of philosophical discussion about when it is appropriate to kill foreign visitors. And luckily, over Chinese food. That, that's definitely <laughs> that the sort was, of thing one wants to discuss. Well, really over any kind of food. I mean, I don't know that the cuisine matters, but yeah. We were actually having tiny cups of very bitter Arab coffee at that moment. We hadn't actually started. We hadn't got to the dining together stage. We had about 10 minutes of back and forth about, and we were very grateful for my university studies of what it says in the Quran about when the messengers are able to be accepted by the Umar of Muslims and what makes the king legitimate. Because Eventually, it came down to me arguing about who read the uh, sermon in the mosque and uh, what uh, who had signed my visa and so forth. And eventually, apparently, my arguments persuaded him. 
And the thundery moment was passed. And indeed, the next evening, we actually continued our conversation over <laughs> a Chinese meal. But, you know, looking back on it, we laugh about it now. But my poor colleague, uh, Danny Pearl, went to a similar encounter with people he hoped were going to lead him to Al-Qaeda. And he was going, you know, it was his last night in Pakistan. And he was tricked and he was trapped. And he, and he was murdered. The poor Danny, he was murdered. Yes, it's awful. And you know, this raises another question. We like our war stories, right? I, I have lots of war stories too. I've spent my career studying conflict, and that means sometimes you get close and you come back with interesting things to tell and people like to read it and they like to hear it. And I wonder to what extent you can't help but glamorize it when you tell it this way. And I don't know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about how to tell war stories without making it seem just like a lot of fun? Stories about encounters like the one I just gave and there's actual real war stories about front lines. I think the dramatization of encounters is legitimate because it is something that happened one can understand their point of view and part of our job on the bridge between these various countries. And I'm very conscious of my role of being on the bridge. I'm not in part of one group and I'm explaining things to another group. And most of my life I was explaining Middle Easterners to Americans and I'm part of neither group really. So it was a complex thing going on. And I think that we... Part two, dining, dining with Quanon, <laughs> making sense of the United States. Well, you know, but then you get into things like Borat uh, and you can do that where you can make uh, comic caricatures of people. And I think that's very wrong. I think that one has to be rather humble in one's role of explaining and empathizing with the group there. And I think I saw my main role as a Westerner who had spent 30 years, had learned all the languages, was felt very comfortable in those places. So I felt I had the legitimacy to explain the context to people because just as war is legendarily 90% boredom and 10% terror, so journalism, when you're explaining a situation in a country to a distant audience. I remember a Wall Street Journal editor once sat me down and explained to me that in journalism school, the job apparently is to tell 10 things, nine of which will reassure your reader that what you're saying is true and therefore they can trust you and therefore you can add one new thing and they might believe that. And of course, you also have to make exciting and sexy so that people will read through to the end of the story. But the trouble with the Middle East, especially the Middle East, is that there's so much ideological sort of layers in the Western approach to it. And sometimes I I think the Middle East is actually an extension of the Western imagination rather than something in itself. By the time things have been filtered out enough for a Western reader to read it, I sometimes felt that nine parts of it were not actually what I would normally say. And the one part I would agree was the truth. It was like, if you had a res you had a spectrum of what was really happening in my mind in the Middle East and what Westerners would accept was true about the Middle East, would only have a very small overlapping point in the middle. And that was where, as a Western journalist in the Middle East, you have to stay if you're going to keep the trust of both sides. So do you have to be a Westerner to explain other parts of the world to Westerners? Or is it better to let people who represent the region themselves do the explaining? I mean, it's something I struggle with studying as an American, right, who studies the rest of the world, places I have ties to, but I mean, really, I'm American. So, you know, is it better to let people explain their own worlds or are interpreters needed? Interpreters are definitely needed. I've lived my life doing that, so I suppose I would say that. Um, when I worked for The Independent, a 
of London in the 1990s in Turkey, I used to quite explicitly say to myself, I will write one story for me and one story for them. So the story for me would be the one about the quirks of life in Turkey, obviously filtered through what will be interesting to British people, but definitely from a Turkish viewpoint. And then the other one would be for them where they'd want to hear about the outrages and the dictatorial tendencies and the kind of things that alarmed people about Turkey. So I would try and balance it. And that seemed to be one way to do the interpreting role. Yeah. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking about his the new edition of his book, Dining with Al-Qaeda, Making Sense of the Middle East. I'm going to pivot, though, because we're about halfway through the episode, and I want to talk a little bit about the year that was. 2020 has been kind of a doozy of a year, hasn't it? From the standpoint of this podcast, which has been one of my joys of 2020, I really, you know, it's one of my favorite things about my job is this podcast. But kind of looking back at what we've done here, what are some of the things that stand out for you? I completely agree that this has been the one moment where I've felt that I, I can fly out of the constraints of my lockdown, as it were, and visit the rest of the world. I mean, we hadn't thought that we could do this podcast outside of the studio and having guests coming to us. And this is part of the great adaptation that the world has gone through, hasn't it? They've discovered there's so many things you can do without having to consume hydrocarbon. And, without uh, ever leaving your house. <laughs> yeah. You can do so much from your couch. Uh, yes. And um, for me, it's been extraordinary how productive we've been able to be despite everything that's happened. In fact, it's been almost unhealthy. It's been like an engine revving too fast without being able to change into a higher gear. Know whether we've truly reflected that in our podcast because we've carried on interviewing people as if all the great institutions of the world are going to carry on as they are NATO, the EU, US EU relations. It's kind of remained uh, variations on the same theme, hasn't it? But they have carried on. I mean, I think that's what's fascinating is that you have both this enormous cataclysm that everything changes. And at the same time, you know, we talk about arms control to Uli Kuhn and Therese Gottemuller. Uh, we talk about uh, the war in Ukraine with Katya Quinn Judge. Uh, Brexit still chugging along, right? Some things change, some things don't. And in a lot of the world, people couldn't afford to lock down, right? And wars continued, new wars started. Our first podcast episode of 2020 was on Nagorno-Karabakh. It was followed by one on the European Union's peace agenda, right? Some things change, kind of like uh, the update of your book, right? They just Things just keep rhyming, keep going through that kaleidoscope. And COVID is just one more lever of glass thrown in. Yes, we saw two countries using armed force to achieve their political goals in Ethiopia and Azerbaijan suddenly. Was it because America was distracted by its elections, perhaps? Or was it because they felt that they could do what they wanted because the world was distracted by COVID? I suppose it did play a role. But also the world has changed, right? What you were saying about agency in the Middle East, the notion that you watch the United States or Russia or the Europeans or whoever else, whatever outside party before taking action. Okay, you still do, but maybe you don't check in quite the way you might have once. I do think we will be studying this year for a while and trying to parse what are the effects of COVID and what are just broader trends to what extent COVID accelerates or accentuates them and to what extent it really changes things. Obviously too early to know, but a fascinating set of questions. 
my father, who is in his 70s, kind of early on marveled that he'd never seen anything like this before in his life, right? And I think, you know, which has lasted a while, and he's seen a lot of things in his life. So kind of that this is something entirely new, at least to him, though it's not entirely new in human history. There have been pandemics and lockdowns before, but not in most of our lives. So any of us think that it won't happen again. I think we probably all suspect that it will. And I wonder how we prepare for it and respond to it a second time around. I think it's a bit like crisis group work, isn't it? We spend a lot of time writing early warning pieces and then suddenly the crisis happens and then's your chance to implement all those recommendations because suddenly people are listening. And I think it's a bit like that with, with COVID is another crisis. I very much remember at the crisis group headquarters when we had our first real sort of group meeting about the beginning of the lockdown. It was like the beginning of war. There was that sense of both fear and excitement as we moved into a new era. And it was a very clear dividing line before that and after that where suddenly things started changing fast. And I think one of the trends that has accelerated is shrinking of our personal horizons. I'm now much more conscious of my neighborhood of Brussels. I'm also much more conscious of the borders of Belgium because at the early stages... Because they suddenly exist again. Yeah, they were dragging containers across roads that were going across the border. And so suddenly that whole idea of the sort of the pan-European identity, which I'd become completely absorbed by, it didn't occur to me that those borders could ever return, but they certainly did. And I think that trend has certainly not played out yet. So it's fascinating, actually, because we live in this world of globalization. We talk about, we've been talking about the world changing. It had been a lot about interconnection, and in Europe especially, kind of that second episode of the year when we talked about EU foreign policy, part of the question was, you know, kind of just to what extent can the EU have a foreign policy? How does that even work? All these different countries. But we are all in different countries. Borders do still matter in a way that frustrates people, but, you know, they have, they've attained a salience that they haven't really had in years. I don't know how this plays out, but it's certainly a fascinating realization for me. Myself as a British person watching Britain move away from the continent, it's a bit like when I was a child going onto the ocean liners where you'd have these little streamers and there would be thousands of them linking the passengers and their friends on the dockside. And then one by one, they snap and I'm seeing it with, you know, bank accounts being closed and warnings on my economist podcast. It really feels like things are changing. And I suppose my problem is I can't work out whether we're on the Titanic or we're in the lifeboat. But um, A little, yeah, well, we're on a lifeboat and it's heading towards another iceberg. So, you know, it's... <laughs> It's a big lifeboat. But, you know, on the one hand, we are still extremely interconnected, right? It, you might be listening to this podcast from Uganda. You might be listening to it from Miami. You might be listening to it from Frankfurt, right? Any of these is possible. You'll hear the same things and you'll probably understand it somewhat similarly because there's a bias to the sort of people probably who listen to this podcast. Love you all. Absolutely. But, you know, <laughs> you are the sort of people who listen to this podcast. I'm the sort of person who, you know, offers the podcast. It's, it's all good. Uh, but, right, there's so much connection, but we can't get together and see each other, right? Unless it's on a little tiny screen. And this will change. But the fact that we were so used to being able to move around, and now we can't, and we've all had this experience. I think that's really interesting. And then again, we've got the situation now where wealthy countries are buying up the vaccine, and they're going to vaccinate and poor countries are going to have a much harder time of it. And I wonder how that is going to affect global dynamics 
and international relations. Well, I really hope that people will see that no one is safe unless everyone is safe in this case and that the big countries will be big enough to share what they have because they're not going to be able to sleep easy until this is under control and all the evolutions of the virus are under control. They, they can't open up and make money the way they used to until that happens, right? Well, it's a global commons problem, right? But it gets a little philosophical. But I do think you see on the individual level and on the national level, this tension between, you know, this is this was always described to me as a Middle Eastern proverb, right? That it's me against my brothers, my brothers and I against the rest of our family, our family against our village, our village against our region, our region against our country, our country against the world. These concentric circles of identity and responsibility and the notion that, yeah, actually, you have to think about the world at the exact same time as you think about yourself and your brothers, I think that's difficult for people. You know, there's a tendency to think us first, and then we think about all of the rest of it, but that's not, in fact, the universe we live in. And, you know, this is climate too, right? It's this notion of I do what's convenient for me and mine, and then I figure out the implications. Well, that's gotten us into quite a mess, hasn't it? And I don't know. I, I'm curious whether COVID changes it, because thus far it hasn't. It's gone in the other direction. Well, with some exceptions, I mean, I agree with you that the sense of community is changing. The way we work is different, but it's also opened up new vistas for us. I mean, I'm the director of communications at Christ Group, and then suddenly we have this phenomenon of the online event where suddenly we can see our audience for the first time because they all register, they all say who they are and where they are, and you suddenly realize who's interested in what we do in a way that we in this podcast don't fully know who's listening. But we certainly, I agree with you, we are clearly like-minded people, otherwise we wouldn't be staying together like this, but I can see that the community that we're now seeing that can be together at the same time globally is a new coming together of people who can definitely be mobilized to think beyond their own national narrow group. But I think it's the first time we've been conscious of that group as a distinct identity creating possibility. Well, and I think also accessibility that on the one hand, I desperately miss the in-person contact at conferences and events, and the Zoom side chat really is not the same. It has its advantages, but it's really not the same. But people who have difficulty traveling, whether for financial reasons or for distance reasons or for physical reasons, people who normally wouldn't be able to attend some of these events now can. Now, on the one hand, this fills up your schedule with vast quantities of meetings held around the world. But I mean, I do hope that we can hold on to some of that and develop a hybrid model which lets us both meet face to face and include people who can't quite get there. That would be a positive outcome from what's overall been fairly miserable lived experience. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I think on that note, we're out of time. It's been a really interesting conversation. And I'm looking forward to taking something of a holiday break, limited as the holiday options may be. And all of you listeners, like-minded or not, I hope you are too, whatever you do or don't celebrate. I hope you take some space and time for whatever brings you joy and rest as 2020 draws to a close. And we look forward to 2021. Um, very much the same for me. I do hope that next year we'll be able to get back into the studio that we once thought was all important for Olga and myself and that we would only do a podcast when we actually had a guest who'd come in and talk to us. It seems like another era, but I suppose like so much of this pandemic year, we've adapted to this new way of doing things and uh, yeah, it still doesn't quite feel right and permanent. I do hope we get, as you say, go back to some new hybrid synthesis. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to adapting back. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
So, and in the meantime, I recommend that you check out Hugh's book. And if you want to figure out where to get it and how to read it, I mean, I suppose you can Google, but you can also just go to HughPope.com and um, you can learn a good bit more. I think you will then decide that you do want to read it. I have my very own copy because Hugh gave it to me, but uh, (laughs) I recommend you go out and get your own or stay in and get your own. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you, Olia. And to keep up with the rest of Crisis Group's work, obviously, and of course, the podcast, if you want to look back at them, they're all on our website, crisisgroup.org. And you can also log in on Apple and YouTube to get more. And you should also follow both Crisis Group and Hugh and me on Twitter. Crisis Group's at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olia Oliker, O-L-Y-A-O-L-I-K-E-R. And check uh, Crisis Group out on Facebook and Instagram, where it's also at Crisis Group. And do feel free, of course, to tweet to us, to rate us, and do leave reviews. We're always very keen to hear your feedback and link up with you in that way, too. We check. We check the reviews and the ratings. I wouldn't say obsessively, but we do check. I mean, you know, it's really, it's been hours since I've checked. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) tell tell us what you think. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts focused on Europe, Europod. Check it out for some of the others. Big thanks as well to our producer, Bull Media, and to Rebecca Zeruhuna Asifa, who makes sure that Olya and I know what we're doing every time we record an episode. Our biggest thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. We are wishing you all of the very best for 2021 and looking forward to chatting with you again in the bright light of a new year. Until then, happy holidays and goodbye for me. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.